All right, what's going on, guys? So today we're sitting down with Casim uh, Hansen. Casim uh, has been on the podcast with once before, and we're going to be talking a little bit about optimizing biomechanics for hypertrophy. So, as some of you probably already know, Casim, his big thing is sort of like looking at different exercises and how we can get more out of them. And uh, I guess I'll just kind of let you introduce yourself real quick, and then we can sort of take it away. Hey, what's up, everybody? Uh, I'm Coach Kasim. I'm the founder and the creator of N1 Education, and basically, I specialize in research that is applicable to like real-world training, right? With the emphasis on, you know, being able to take that and disseminate it down for personal trainers, athletes, etc. Alike, and I would say, you know, we, we're more biased towards the physique realm, but I mean, when it comes to biomechanics, there really isn't a a limit to where you can apply that stuff whether it's you know sprinting mma bodybuilding like etc like the more you know about the body the more you know about what to do with it <laughs> yeah no 100 percent. and so i guess uh probably a pretty good place to start the conversation would be when you're looking at an athlete um i guess we can go novice intermediate and advanced obviously there's going to be different priorities in terms of what needs to be emphasized or de-emphasized at what times in, in their stages of development. So how do you go about that process of kind of identifying like when a lot of the changes that, that you like to make start to, to matter maybe a little bit more, or I guess, what do you sort of bias initially? And then how does that maybe progress as the athlete goes from let's say novice to intermediate advanced and so on? Yeah. So there's, there's different, I would say like categories of optimization of exercise. Like one thing is, is like orthopedic, right? So it's like, all right, simply just dialing in somebody's technique so that the exercise is just more stimulus and less hard on their joints. It's safer, et cetera. And I think that's stuff that it's never too early to apply that stuff. When you start getting the nuance into the nuances of like, you know, biasing muscles, like, do you need to train the different divisions of the pec? or the lat and stuff like that there's two there's two entry points into that right one is from like we'll say like a a joint integrity or a you know a strength balance issue you know somebody could come in they could have had a previous injury or this is just something that they never do or whatever and that's clearly going to be holding them back and progressing and then the other entry point is like look i just want thing be bigger that thing right there like the bodybuilding like just like make this bigger right there and so Really, you know, in terms of when you start integrating this stuff, I would say is when your goals start to get a little bit more specific or you start to add, like we'll say, the amount of volume and frequency and stuff where you need to be a little bit more cognizant in regards to the orthopedic health and the effect that the accumulation of exercises is having on not just your ability to do volume and stay safe with injury, but also like to keep them from competing with each other. So for instance, if you're going to train back twice, a, you know, twice a week, um, do you want those things to be like the same thing and overlap? Or is, you know, can you now take advantage of like, well, I can bias a different part of my lats on Monday and then another part on Thursday. And therefore I can accrue a little bit more volume more stimulus that way and you know maybe be a little bit more efficient with my ability uh to progress maybe i'll have to deload a little bit less maybe i'll be able to um 
be able to monitor like how I'm progressively overloading for those different divisions a little bit more, but you know, a little bit cleaner because I don't have like, well, so much fatigue rolling over from one session to the next. And like, is today's session the problem or was it last session that was the problem? The more you can kind of start pulling things out, the better it is to kind of like match your progressions and know exactly what's working uh, and what's not. But if you just have a bunch of ambiguous exercises at a certain point, you know, once you kind of like get rid of those beginner gains, it's hard to know what's working, what's fatiguing and whatnot, because you just have this cluster of very similar things or things that aren't very specific. Um, and so from an analytical perspective, it's really helpful from an orthopedic perspective, it's really helpful. And as your goals get more specific, like knowing that stuff and having those tools that empowers you to actually build the physique or build strength exactly where you want it. Yeah, so <clears throat> personally, I think one of the big things that I realized when, uh, when I started making some of those adjustments just in my own training um, was you almost get like a, kind of newbie gains almost like you know when you start becoming a little bit more advanced and dialing things in little tweaks tend to have a much more profound impact and then they tend to have a much more like synergistic effect with all the other things that you're doing and so i definitely notice that like because i train my back every session I, mean, I think a lot of powerlifters kind of do that for the most part um and yeah, I just noticed that like I started making some of these like little adjustments where like I'm looking at sort of like the line of pull and whether I'm kind of getting up into the upper back type or if I'm sort of staying in the lat and things like that. And as like little as that sounds in terms of like a change that you're making, I definitely noticed a huge difference in terms of my back never gets sore. And it was like always sore now, like in a really good way. And then mm -hmm. I also my shoulders my bicep tendon and stuff like that weren't getting as banged up and so like those little things like you were saying the orthopedic benefits and then also just being a little bit more targeted with with the stimulus that you're presenting i definitely noticed a really really big difference um in that personally just from making some realistically like pretty subtle adjustments like i didn't mm -hmm. do anything really crazy like i'm still not on the you know, all these kind of exercises where you're doing like maybe a bicep curl from, from like that angle or something like that, or doing it like this. I haven't kind of got there yet, but uh, I, I've been pretty surprised at the impact that just making some of those subtle changes has actually had um, in my own training. So. Yeah. If you, if you, if you wanted to dumb down the principle to like not being specific to the anatomy, it'd be like, imagine you took somebody that never did a full depth squat. They always stopped early, you know, yeah. And if they did leg extensions, they never took it to the top. They just did like, so it's like the equivalent of like moving to these more biased exercises, right? Is it's the same equivalent of like, if you took somebody that's been squatting for 10 years, but their calves and their hamstrings had never actually met each other because <laughs> depth was actually so shallow. And then all of a sudden you introduce them to a full depth squat and it's going to be like, holy crap, that's a range of motion, you know, and a novelty and, you know, different fiber recruitment that I never had experienced before. A lot of these positions are just allowing people to not only to get like specificity of the contraction, but it's also opening up ranges that just aren't possible to hit if you're working in exercises that are kind of like 
you know, we'll say like Omni or, or working a bunch of muscles at once because something in there is going to limit your, your your range of motion, right? And if it's not that target tissue, as soon as you switch to more biased exercise, it's like, okay, that's a range of motion that I is is, is untrained and, and untapped. So yeah, you can absolutely experience, you know, quote unquote, like newbie style gains um, because it is a degree of novelty that a lot of people may not have had in their training. Yeah, and I mean, even even from the standpoint of like, so not too long ago, I had like a little health issue. And so I had to kind of pull out of a, a powerlifting meet. And now I'm focusing more on just kind of like bodybuilding-esque type training um, just until I'm like fully recovered. And the exposure of activities that previously I had never done was was pretty, it was pretty interesting. Cause like I've trained mm -hmm. people to get big. I've trained bodybuilders in the off season. I never do any contest prep and I, I've never worked with like, like a high, high level, like IFBB pro or someone like that at a very elite level. Um, so, you know, you know what you know, but then being exposed to different things than actually doing it is like, holy shit, it's, it's completely different. So I remember when I was first introduced to like failure training for the longest time, that never really made sense to me. I was like, okay, a modest benefit but then at the same time like massive amounts of accumulated fatigue but then i actually did it and i was like oh okay now i get it you know and there's not mm -hmm. you can't really you can't really understand something like that unless you do it at least i didn't understand the benefits of it at, at that point and so i think a lot of these things as well for me anyways have pr been pretty shocking in terms of like the actual impact that it has on um just sustained performance like not needing to deload as frequently um yeah, just things like that. And so when you're when you're approaching um, exercise selection for an athlete, like what are some of the considerations, even just in terms of like an athlete's sort of like anatomy, like their, their size or structure, things like that? Mm -hmm. I mean, so I mean, I would say the first thing we're looking at, you know, it, like if we're just we're speaking athlete in general, but um, is the exercises have to move with a person's like joints. That's 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 the main thing, right? So people are going to have different hip structures, different shoulder structures, different shaped rib cages, and whatnot. And that oftentimes doesn't mean like somebody like can't do an exercise. It just means that for this person, their feet are going to be placed differently, or or, or something like that. Um, but then in some instances, like say you have somebody that has levers that you know, so when they squat, it ends up being a very hingy squat. But if their goal is like I'm trying to strengthen my quads. Then it, from an exercise selection standpoint, it might be like, well, why don't we move to a hack squat? Or if you have heel elevation, then we'll use that. Or if you've got a pendulum, well, then we'll use that. So it's like trying to set them up for the best possible success and the least amount of of strain possible, you know, towards their goal. So really it's about looking at like, what are the best exercises for that person's structure and goal? Um, and sometimes that means changing exercises and other times it's like, hey, you know, if we use this grip or we stand, you know, in this stance or whatever, that's gonna fit your joints better and then that's a good way. And then if, you know, if we're trying to, you know, like for a power lifter or whatnot, like the exercises that you guys have to compete in aren't necessarily designed to be perfect biomechanics and they're not biased towards anything you know same thing for any performance athlete you know like running by nature is not meant to be an isolated exercise towards any muscle like our gait pattern is designed to cycle through muscles so that certain things could be working and recovering like all of the time right it really suck if you're running away from the tiger and you had like just one muscle that was the breaking point and then that thing cramps like you get a hamstring you're like oh, oh well he died well that would have evolved out like really really fast right instead like a lot of the sport specific or performance-based movement patterns we have are a way of sharing the load which is the opposite of what we'd focus on you know and say like bodybuilding or hypertrophy training where we're trying to be very very specific so 
it really depends on the goal if you want to go further than that. But at a baseline, it's like, hey, how do we make this as stressful on the tissue that we want to train and as least stressful on the joints we want to train? Um, and a lot of times that's just like, you know, choosing exercises that fit a person's structure and then using, you know, whatever grips, arm paths, stances, et cetera, that fit them a little bit better. So let, let's just assume that you're coaching an athlete and um, you've kind of done that basic groundwork of, okay, based on, you know, what you've said your goals are, based on your, your anatomy, your structure, all that stuff. Um, we kind of have an idea of these general exercises are probably going to be better suited for you uh, as a starting point. How do you go about progressing them, um, either in terms of progressing the exercises complexity, if that's required, or, you know, are you looking to progress load? Are you looking to progress repetitions? Or how do you sort of decide on that based on the athlete? Like what's yeah. So... Programming is always so interesting because you have so many moving parts, right? You got volume and frequency that need to come into play, right? And those are those are kind of kind of set the foundation for what you have, like in terms of like the number of exercises that you can choose and, and how much volume that you can choose, right? So like if somebody's only hitting a body part once per week, well, then you better hit multiple exercises there, but you can only accumulate so much. But if somebody's training it two times a week or three times a week, well, then that opens up the amount. But if frequency gets too high, well, then you can only hit so many exercises per workout, et cetera. So a lot of what we look at for progression is just looking at, okay, within the constraints of what we have, what options do we have? And something like progressing and load is always available, right? It doesn't matter if like what your split is or whatever, right? So that tends to be the primary and the most consistent thing is, is like, first thing we're going to try and do is actually just progressive overload with actual load um, or just improvements in technique. And those, those those can happen at the same time, right? You can, can always be focusing on technique and improving load. I don't know why some people think that, you know, when you're improving technique, that that means that load has to go down. That's usually, that usually actually only occurs when it's like somebody's lifting like a total jackass and they're like using their whole body and then like you're reducing, you know, the amount of momentum and stuff. But when you're like just tweaking somebody to like a slightly better arm path or you choose a stance that's more favorable for them, they actually usually, the, the loads go up, right? They're actually, the performance usually improves if you're optimizing the exercise. It's not the other way around. Um, but that's kind of where our start is, is like, all right, well, how much can we get out of the current program by just simply progressive overload and technique and loading and, you know, adding a rep or needed or whatever, like our version of progressive overload, you know, we kind of use load and reps or whatever to kind of keep the stimulus relatively the same, right? So if it's like, okay, if we go up a rep this week, then next week we're going to try and get up and load and get back down to the rep range that we were working on because it keeps things very consistent, right? So you're not starting a meso at 10 reps and then ending it at, you know, 16 or 20 reps. It's like you're ending it in a relatively similar rep range. Um, but then when we kind of throw in the other stuff is is when we're ready to kind of like break out of that that template of the current program that we're doing so it's like okay now the progression that i'm looking for is i'm looking to add volume and as you're adding volume or adding frequency then that's where these other tools of like, well, okay, now I have shortened exercises and lengthened exercises or different divisions. Now, as you start adding, you could be like, is it more efficient to just add sets of the same thing? Or could we actually be a little bit more efficient of our volume by specializing that training a little bit more? So basically, once we get to the point where, you know, somebody is no longer 
but like they're kind of reaching their volume limit for those single exercises and they're not necessarily going to get more out just driving more stimulus into those because there's just there's just simply a cap you can only get so much stimulus out of a single exercise that motor pattern fatigues and the specific limiters and that exercise fatigue and then just doing more of that isn't necessarily going to give you a good roi you're just going to accumulate more fatigue right which is actually going to be like worse so you got to figure out all right well what can i do to actually be more efficient with my volume decrease the amount of fatigue and increase the stimulus and that's where then we start looking at okay is this a muscle group that we have the ability to train it through different ranges of motion? Um, is this a muscle group where we can train different regions of it? Um, or if none of those are both uh, or, or an option, it's like, can we just use a different resistance profile, you know, as, as, as a way of doing it, right? And so depending on what the muscle is, like for upper body, you tend to have way more options than with lower body where you just have so many different exercises the shoulder joint you know moves more free and like if we're holding things with our hands like we can do a lot more exercises with changing stuff with our hands than we can changing stuff with our feet like with our feet we get like okay we can kind of rotate our feet and we can move things out and in but 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 that's about that's about it right like there's no like there's no there's no glute reverse flies you know or, or things like that you know as much as we try them like usually they end up being so unstable that like okay well in the, and good it's kind of you know just not loadable um so that's kind of what that's kind of where that stuff comes in this is like as we're adding as as we're adding volume there becomes a point where that becomes an inefficient strategy and has a poor roi and then it's looking at okay how can i improve that strategy from the single exercise and accomplish either the same thing or actually a broader stimulus across that tissue or motor pattern by breaking that up into components that are a little bit more specialized, right? So the if if I put some practical stuff in here, like one of the first things to do is like say you have somebody and they were doing a lot of volume of like you know squats or whatever, right? Like let's say it was was a lifter that was focusing on big compound lifts. Well, the first efficiency thing you could do, you could cut back some of that volume and put in work that either wasn't spinal loading or added more stability, right? So that you could get more local stimulus with less systemic fatigue and you know less neurological fatigue. So it's like okay, taking some of those exercises in and maybe adding leg press or leg extensions or 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 more more leg curls, right? Or or taking that and be like, okay, instead of you know squatting twice a week, we squat one day and on the other day we hit a hack or a pendulum or, or something like that where we're not loading the spine, et cetera. So those things all of a sudden start to increase the amount of stimulus we're able to put into the tissue but decrease the amount of fatigue that we accumulate everywhere else, right? So now, now we can use more volume for the local tissue where otherwise we would have been running into a plateau of volume that we could have tolerated from a fatigue standpoint because those big combat exercises just, you know, they have that much more systemic fatigue. So is that a fairly um, common strategy or, or theme that you see within your own programming paradigm is you may start out with some com like some, some more complex movements like a squat or whatever, and then as you kind of push them into the later stages of that training phase, block cycle, whatever you want to call it, things sort of get regressed to an extent in terms of exercise complexity. Um, I would I would I would say I wouldn't say that's a common thing because it really kind of depends on the demographic you're working within, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say you're working with Joe Public that's just looking to get like you know beach physique right they're looking to build some muscle lose some body fat or whatnot at that point like if somebody like that comes in 
you don't necessarily need to start them off with like squats and deadlifts just because these are foundational motor patterns or whatnot. Really what it might be like is just like, hey, you know, this person's coming in. What's just the most efficient way for me to get output for them? So right out of the gate, something like a hack squat might be better for that person, right? Especially because people come in with all sorts of limitations, right? Like the average person that like comes in off the street, their squat pattern is so poor that it's going to take a long time to get them good at that you know, in order for it to be like, now it's a really beneficial hypertrophy or, or body composition exercises, mm -hmm. right? Like really it's like those things are like, okay, well they can kind of work during that beginner phase, but are they really the most efficient or could I actually get more volume and effort out of this person right away by just doing that? And then there's also the psycho the psychology component, right? Of like compound exercises, you know, for some people they love them for other people they hate them for a variety of reasons and then there's also just the confidence within the lift like if if you're in a machine it's very controlled and whatnot like it's very easy for somebody that doesn't know how to go hard in the squat so they can go hard in a leg extension or whatever right because they, they, there's no fear component in there right and because you're using less tissue the perceived effort is relatively lower you know so you might like in those people but now when we're talking about seasoned athletes they're able to get more out of those compound exercises Right. But then the question is, is how much does that correlate over to to their goals uh, or not? Right. So I would say what we do now is, is like we just try and put people in at the at the most efficient point that makes sense for them to start. And there's there's a variety of factors. So sometimes that's using more big compound movements, but sometimes it's like, actually, no, like, let's just jump right into machine things because that ultimately, you know, serves your goal because you don't really care what your squat looks like or how much it is or, or whatnot. So as long as I include enough exercises that we're getting strength around the whole hip and, and what, like it's, it's a balanced enough program. It's not like somebody's going to then become dysfunction and they're going to go to pick up their phone off the floor and they're going to throw their back out because they've doing, been doing machines and not like barbell, barbell squats, right? Like that's, that's, the functional training lie of like oh yeah you got to do all this you know stuff right yeah so so really it's just about trying to find the most efficient place for that person and their 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 skill set and their goals are going to be a big part of that but we don't tend to say like oh we're going to start with these and then go there um what i would say is the one place where that does fit in is when a person is very constrained meaning that they're in a situation where whether it's their frequency, the volume, et cetera, or equipment limitations, et cetera, dictate that they have to do exercises where like, I don't have time to do, you know, a bunch of exercises. What I need is one exercise that does a lot of things. Like I need a Swiss army approach to training where I need a few exercises that I can work hard that are going to give me stimulus across a lot of different tissue. And then that's where those exercises win out over the more biased exercises. Because, you know, if you're doing a very biased exercise by nature, it's good. Stimulus is going to be very biased towards that one thing. And that thing becomes a limiter. So it's going to be less of a broad stimulus across multiple muscles or a lot of tissue. Whereas some of these big compound exercises, one of the reasons that people People love to throw them at the beginning is is that look I only have to teach this person like three things and we're training almost like the whole body right then you can get by with that you know to to a certain point but when it comes to physique like you would you would have to follow the a, a specificity progression over time right but for body composition sometimes we actually will regress from specificity to generality because we actually need we're like in a way we're trying to create more fatigue with our volume because we're trying to you know we're trying to create a you know a bunch of metabolic stress and, and partition a bunch of nutrients across a whole bunch of muscles in as little volume as possible and then okay now some of those big movements might actually then work their way back into being more favorable for the goal yeah, and that was something that personally I struggle with because 
I like I have good barbell work capacity relative to like strength training, but mm-hmm. definitely not relative to like a bodybuilding type program with that kind of volume. So mm-hmm. I found that I had to remove squats um, and whether it's temporary or if it's going to be a little bit more of an ongoing thing, uh, probably I, I imagine I'll be able to cycle them in every now and then, but uh, I had to remove them because like I was just so beat up because I was like, I like squatting. I like deadlifting. I like benching. Um, and I was just like, it was going really, really well. And then maybe about like six or seven weeks in, I was like, oh, I'm feeling a little beat up. And so I pulled front squats out, switched it to wide stance belt squats and feel great. Like everything's going really well. And uh, it's, it's tough mentally for me <laughs> just because like I like squatting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess I'd be I'd be interested in hearing your perspective on that. Like, what uh, what do you do with athletes in terms of like based on their level of experience? Um, how might that impact your implementation of some of those bigger movements, like squats or or bench press, like with a barbell, deadlift, things like that? Or are you kind of maybe trying to bias certain variations of those? Or is the frequency something that's altered? Obviously, it's going to be individual dependent. But what's your sort of thought process around that prior to you know? creating some sort of prescription for, for an individual. Yeah. I mean, so you have, you have room with a lot of those exercises. Like, so for instance, the squat, you can make a squat, you can make the quads a greater limiter in the squat, right? So that you're going to need less load and you're going to load the spine less. Right. And it's like, okay, the, like the main tool that we would use for that would probably be heel elevation. Cause it's just, it's the easiest one to apply. Right. If we, if we start moving the bar like forward back, that may work for some people, um, but it doesn't necessarily always make it extremely quad dominant right but if you if you set yourself up in a wedge where your knees are really far away from you like the amount of load that you need is less the amount of load on your spine is less so it's like okay so that's a way now to introduce more of a local fatigue factor relative to the amount of systemic fatigue um that you're going to get right same thing like with your hinge and pulls right like if you you know if you have a, a a deadlift where you can use your quads and your hip extensors like relatively balanced you might be like well actually since we're doing quads over here let's actually make make our deadlift like super hingy it's like going to be like a deadlift rdl like hybrid you know higher pull type type of thing right again that might take you know away from the loading a little bit but now it's like okay we're still loading those those patterns um and i think it's important right like if somebody's got like you know they have like the barbell gene right where they just they just love they just love throwing them around the bar right and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that um but you like you said there's just there's limitations when you start doing certain types of training of like well i can only tolerate so much of these exercises um so one one strategy is what i just said you know you find a way to make them a little bit more biased so you introduce more of a local limiter and you decrease the systemic limiter right the other thing you do is you just you manipulate volume um appropriate to your goals so one of the things that we'll do sometimes is like if somebody's like hey you know i'd love to squat but my real goal is i'm trying to like do i have this hypertrophy goal or whatever that's going to require this volume and it's like can we include the squat in there at a lower volume or in some way where we've introduced a limiter where it's no longer going to be contributing as much fatigue but it's still going to satisfy that you know desire for that person to continue to perform that lift and also help maintain that motor pattern so they never feel like they're like they, they, they don't they get rid of that fear that they're oh crap if i do this then on my squat and my bench or whatever are gonna go like way down um and i think you know 
lot of people overestimate like how much they're going to lose on those lifts and they don't realize that like okay what you're losing is a little motor coordination but if you're if you're actually getting if your quads are getting stronger and your glutes are getting stronger and your hands like if you're training all those things and they're all getting stronger when you go back to a squatting pattern you have that strength you just need to wire that motor pattern in and then your squat should then progress actually faster than it was before as you're reintegrating that motor pattern now with this new localized muscle strength it's kind of that you know this if you increase the strength of the sum of the parts right then the other thing will you know the, the total will be greater but you just have to give yourself the time to put it in and oftentimes that's only a couple of weeks right like people like people coming out of a a non we'll say barbell like hypertrophy or strength phase and then they go back into a barbell in that first four weeks that they're back in the bar they'll make more pro they'll make more progressions with their bar stuff than they would over a 12-week meso like of continuously using the bar now i'm not saying that like they'll be past you know where they went from a special specialization phase but i mean you regain that strength and then you progress relatively quickly when you bring that motor pattern uh back in so three strategies there you can either just try and find a way to make the exercise more biased and introduce a limiter you can manipulate the volume you know or you can just buy, get people to buy into periodizing them in and out right yeah and that was something that personally i had a hard time with as well because like i if i'm being honest i actually don't like bodybuilding at all like mm -hmm. i don't enjoy the training and maybe that's just because i'm new to it you know relatively speaking but i like lifting heavy weights and so when i was doing front squats i was doing eight reps you know and when i was doing deadlifts i was still doing eight reps which is still you know bodybuilding type rep range but um i i just liked going heavy you know and mm -hmm. I would be too fatigued to do a weight that I knew that I could should be able to easily do for eight. But if I do that, I definitely won't be able to do it next week. So I was going mm -hmm. real low. Like I was doing like 350 or something like that. And like, I was like, okay, me, you know, if I give myself maybe like six weeks, I could progress up and like my conditioning will be okay. And then I could be doing like maybe 450 for eight. And it was just like, I just got way too much fatigue. And I was like, you know what? I've just got to move this out because mentally it's fucking me up. So mm -hmm. put your belt squats, feel way better. And then I'm not really thinking about like, oh, I'm such a weak piece of shit, you know? Yeah. So, <laughs> for me, that's the big one that gets me is just like mentally not being able to push to the level that I like. Because I just genuinely like lifting really heavy. Um, go on, sorry. Don't, don't underestimate the value of being able to really load up stable exercise and stuff. I think a lot of people think that as soon as they start going away from the big lifts and they go to, you know, machines or biased exercise, that that means that they have to do higher rep ranges, you know, in relative lighter loading or whatnot. But, you know, I have like, we will use, you know, sets of four on the hack squat, like no problem. And just have people load the crap out of that so that, I mean, you're still, you're, you're training really, really heavy. Right. And so the question I would ask you is, is like, what would satisfy you more? Is this like doing something on a machine where it was still really heavy, where you got to just move and clang a bunch of plates versus doing a weight that you normally would have been, a, or doing an exercise that you normally would have been able to do heavy, but now you're doing it lighter and you're suffering more while doing it, right? Yeah, yeah no, and, and that's exactly it. That's one of the reasons why I kind of decided to switch over. Um, and I actually am kind of biasing a little bit lower rep range as well. Like I'm doing kind of mm -hmm. six eights on the belt squat, which, I, well, I've got one day where I'm going pretty low, and then later on in the week when I'm doing my, my assistance movement, I've also got like a 15 to 20 rep range on, on like a leg press. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I find doing both of those just really crushes me, but I'm still able to make like, you know, reasonable progressions week over week. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I definitely agree with you, but again, I'm not, I'm not a bodybuilder. So like, you know, I know all this stuff, but it's like, when you do it yourself, it's very different in terms of the, the um, just sort of being like emotionally mature enough to, to be like, you know what, this is what I would tell my clients to do. So I should probably just do it myself. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm not coming from the powerlifting side, but I'm also, I'm also not a bodybuilder, but I love training. But one of the things I love training is I love hard sets, right? So like doing a bunch of like, you know, low RPE or high RIR work, like does not satisfy me either, which is why I typically take a top set approach where it's like, okay, I, I will, I will do, you know, four or five sets at, you know, whatever, you know, a lower, like averaging an eight RPE or two RIR or whatever. But I like to take that last set, like to failure, like, like that's what makes training enjoyable to me. And that's what I use for monitoring my progression is, it's not like the work, but it's, it's like, it's like that top set. And so then mentally I have that, okay, I'm going to, push and I'm, I'm going to beat this. Right. And that doesn't mean like top set doesn't mean like you have to like then do like 50 reps or anything like that. It's like, no, it's just, there's one set where that's the set where the pedal goes all the way down. Right. And it's just whatever I can use. And then, you know, maybe I'll do something like a rest pause or a cluster things like that. Um, at this point in my career, because, you know, you get to that point where progressions become smaller and smaller and, le and less and less frequent. And so I'll, I'll use strategies like that because, you know, if you're working in, you know, like a four to six rep range, you know, on certain machines or whatever, like sometimes it's like really hard to like, you know, progress every week or whatnot. Um, but if I do like a rest pause or a drop or, or something, or I include like partials at the end or whatnot, shit, I might get another half rep this week instead of another full rep. But for me, because I took it to that level, I actually know that, okay, I was a half rep better this week than, yeah. than last week. Right. And so I really like incorporating that stuff for me from the, you know, enjoyment side of training. Right. And so I think finding those exercises where you feel confident being able to push yourself like that and being able to incorporate that in top sets can be a really good balance of like, well, if it's just that top set, then you're not going to like completely wipe yourself out. And if you choose it, you choose a good exercise to do it on, it's great. And it still kind of satisfies that kind of like internal, like competitive competitiveness with yourself. Right. Uh, and doesn't, you know, you don't feel like you're just, you know, doing a bunch of a, a fluff volume, you know, just a bunch of pump training. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's definitely one of the benefits of, of hypertrophy training is there's just so many different avenues to, to present a stimulus. Like mm -hmm. it's just a general adaptation. Like you can get bigger doing plyometrics. Like it's definitely not the best way, but like you can get hypertrophy from doing plyometrics. You can get hypertrophy from jogging. And so it's like, there's so many different ways to, not that those would be recommended, but just there's so many different ways to do it that it it really does make things a lot less, I guess, sticky sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. like, again, for, from like a powerlifting perspective, it's like squat, bench, deadlift, close derivatives. You know, if you're not doing those, you're kind of messing things up. Whereas with bodybuilding or like just muscle growth in general, there's like a million different ways that you can do things mm -hmm. and get a pretty great stimulus either way. And so... Um, I guess regarding, regarding planning like different phases of, of training, you know, I've, I've heard you talk about, um, you know, different, different phases, like, okay, now we're going to do something where it's a little bit more biased towards mechanical tension. Now we're going to do a little bit more something biased towards metabolic, uh, sorry. Yeah. Like metabolite accretion, things like that. So do you have any sort of, um, 
like I guess if you go over your thought process behind the structuring of the phases and the sequencing of the phases. Mm -hmm. So when you're focusing on hypertrophy, right, the stimulus that you're trying to drive is mechanical tension, right? And so basically the more of that that you can get in, whether that's in magnitude or volume, right? Like, like, like cause mechanical tension is, is, is magnitude times time. Right. So it's so when you're doing a set, it's how many of those hard reps did you do and how hard to so you're kind of multiplying, you know, effort over time. Right. So that's what you need to be able to drive up and continue to do that stimulus. Right. But recovery, on the other hand, is fueled by the ability to get nutrients in the cell to convert that nutrients into energy and to be able to utilize that. Right. So the reason that we'll kind of periodize between those two is, is that eventually, you know, you drive your volume up so much that you're you start reaching a recovery limit. And that can happen, one, just because you've just reached a certain amount of volume. But it also can happen that you're essentially like as you're focusing on one type of stimulus, what tends to happen is, is that other things start to kind of detrain a little bit. Um, and can now become bottlenecks in the actual like the progress that you make so even though like you might be progressing in overload your your ability to recover from that could now could actually be descending as you're ascending your volume through a meso and at some point in time those two lines are going to cross right like how much you can progress versus how much your recovery has declined so that we use the metabolic training like as a way to then reverse that switch when that happens right so it's a way of both lowering the threshold for the amount of volume that you would need by taking a step back from driving that volume especially that type of high tension volume and also now training your body from an energy system standpoint because when it comes to recovery like the better your cardiovascular and your aerobic health right well then the lower your stress hormones are all day the more you can utilize fat the more you that you can save glycogen right the better you are actually at fueling protein synthesis and doing all the things that you need to recover and the more you know glycogen that you're going to store in the muscle which is going to be able to help you have better contractions and also fuel you know higher intensity and higher volume workouts so when we're looking what we're looking at is trying to figure out okay once we start to cross that bridge of all right Right now, recovery is now becoming a limiter. It doesn't matter if that's because of too much volume or because the recoveries come down because they're both kind of happening at the same time. Is then it's like, okay, instead of just like sitting on the couch and deloading, can we actually take that period and introduce some stuff where it's like, okay, we're going to actually increase my ability to recover, you know, in, in two or three weeks and then jump back into, into, into that bandwagon, right, of, you know, focusing on the hypertrophy style training. So when and how we use these is really just dependent on, you know, when, when a person happens to cross that line of progressive overload and descending recovery over the course of a meso. And then we're trying to basically create as much gap between those lines before we start the next hypertrophy meso, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it absolutely makes sense. Um, what are your thoughts on potentially implementing some sort of like a concurrent, uh, concurrent approach where you are sort of blending the two uh, in order to maintain a, a reasonably high level of fitness while still driving mechanical tension? Obviously, there'd have to be a little bit more of an inverse uh, balance on, on one side. Mm -hmm. but. Yeah. So, I mean, when you're talking about people with very special, like if your goal is like, I just want to get as much hypertrophy as possible, like that's, that's goal. 
then I'd be like, well, you need to prioritize that, right? Stop trying to throw all these things, all, all these things you want. You'll get a better result really focusing on that and then doing your deloading and your periodization accordingly to support that. But when your goal is, is like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, we'll say, build a little bit of muscle, but I don't really want to put on much fat and I want to always be in a certain relative, you know, conditioning, right? So dare I say the term, like you want to be CrossFit, right? Not actually doing CrossFit, but you want to be, you want to be strong and you want to be athletic and you want to be decently conditioned and you want to have decent body composition. You just want to maintain that, which is what the average person actually, that's, that's what they want, right? Like the average person doesn't want to go through like bulking and cutting faces and whatever. They just be like, how do I look good and feel good and feel strong? Like, you know, 24, seven, 365. And that's where, you know, starting to dip into that, you know, kind of hybrid approach can have its benefit, but you just have to understand that like you will maintain a better overall fitness, but you will be sacrificing progress in any specific thing, right? Not just because like, it's not so much that, I mean, because the research shows that like we probably overestimated how much crossover fatigue and negative stuff there was, you know, between doing these types of training um, at the same time, like if you do some aerobic work and your hypertrophy training, like how much does it really, you know, impact your hypertrophy gains, et cetera. Um, but that's all looking at, you know, relative novices or, or whatnot. It's like, it's not looking at people that are doing like specialization levels of volume, right? So it just, by, by, by throwing more into the pot, you just simply can't fit as much of the other thing in the pot, right? So if you're, if you're trying to throw hypertrophy stuff and metabolic stuff in the same pot, at a certain point, that pot gets full. And if you want to put more of one thing, then you're going to have to take the other thing out. And that's just that's just the reality. We don't have an infinite capacity you know, to recover. We don't have an infinite amount of time and effort that we can apply. So it just comes down to like how specific are your goals and how advanced are you, right? Because the more advanced you get, maybe you need to partition a little bit more volume and effort to something and there just isn't room in the pot for that. And it now becomes like a very inefficient way to do it. And periodization now becomes your best friend. Mm -hmm. And so, no, that, that definitely makes sense. And so when, when it comes to an individual sort of looking at, um, their own exercise selection then uh, mm -hmm. any particular, I guess, block or phase or whatever it might be that they're doing. Um, and they're looking to maybe like get a little bit more stimulus, a little bit more connection to the, the muscle that they're trying to train. What are some of the things that you sort of recommend looking at? Like, I know we talked about sort of like the joints first and saying like, does this actually just feel good or is it painful? Is it uncomfortable? Things like that. Mm -hmm. um, what are, what are some of the common things that you can do? or at least common ways to frame it. If, if you were to create like some sort of conceptual framework of, you know, here's how I look at targeting a muscle. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any sort of advice around that where people can kind of take that and, and maybe improve their pull downs, their bicep curls or triceps, chest work, stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, really it's, it's about becoming more specific with the motions, right? So every muscle has like a fully shortened and a fully lengthened position. And it's, its true line of pull exists like an, almost in like a straight arc between those two things. So when we talk about making things a little bit more biased or increasing your ability to feel that muscle, the, it's really just about getting more specific towards that motion. So let's 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 take chest for example, right? Let's say that you were doing you know barbell presses or, or whatever dumbbell presses, etc., um, and you weren't really feeling your your upper chest or whatnot, right? So it's like okay, well 
the, the best strategy is now going to be incorporating an exercise that actually follows the path specifically for those clavicular upper chest fibers. So it's going to be something that's like coming more up towards your clavicle, like under your chin area, you know, type of thing, like a clavicular press, press around or a low to high fly type motion or something like that. It's just making that motion more specific to that target tissue. And that's going to increase your ability to feel it. That's going to increase your, um, you know, your ability to target it, you know. And so that's, it's just moving from motions that we'll say are ambiguous, meaning that a lot of things are working and like whatever's working most may actually change over the course of time in, in that exercise to exercises where actually I'm targeting this muscle pretty much the whole range of motion, which usually correlates to you're actually probably going to be taking that muscle into a greater either stretch or shortening or both than what you were in your other exercises, which is going to induce more novelty, you know, a little bit more because you feel, th you feel a muscle better best when it's in an extreme range, right? Like if you put a stretch on a muscle, you can feel it. If you fully shorten a muscle and you contract there, you you really feel it. But when we tend to be kind of in the mid range, the sensation, like in the mind muscle connection, really kind of like drop down. It has to, you know, it's not as easy to feel that or to control that if we don't have those two extremes. So part of getting more specific is you actually also usually get to a little bit more of the extreme ranges of motion where you can really feel that and learn to connect and control that tissue in isolation, well, not isolation, but in a more biased fashion. Right. So can you actually go into a little bit more depth about what you mean by, um, you know, you're targeting a muscle, you're training a muscle, but it is kind of like a, either a multi-joint movement or sort of a little bit more of a complex movement and how the bias might change as fatigue drives up or what, what sort of considerations there are. Yeah. Well, as you fatigue, I mean, so imagine, Imagine that you have like, you know, three guys lifting a log up overhead, right? And you got the guy in the middle is he's just bigger and stronger and he's got like the, he can push up on it the easiest, right? That's like the, that's like the prime mover in an exercise, right? It's like that guy in the middle. As he starts to fatigue, what's going to happen is he's going to start to lower that log a little bit. And then the guys that are on the on the two sides are going to have to start supporting more of the load. That's kind of what happens with fatigue is we'll have like whatever tissue has like the best line of pull in that exercise. Right. That's like the big guy that's going to be doing the majority of the work. Right. And at the beginning of a set, he's going to really dominate that. But as you as he starts to fatigue, what you do is you start recruiting more of the synergistic muscles that aren't as well lined up with that exercise but can still contribute you know they have just like a little bit of an off direction pull but if something else on the other side has also a little bit of off direction pull then they kind of work together right just like the two guys on the side of the log because if if one guy on the side pushed up and the other guy didn't then the log would tip over right so you got so when we start to get to fatigue we have to have compensation but that that compensation needs to be we'll say symmetrical across the joint right so like if i'm if i'm doing something for my middle chest right as i fatigue my lower and my upper chest are going to start to help more in the later portion of the sets, which means I'm going to have a harder time kind of like feeling and squeezing my middle chest, but the two, the two, we'll say adjacent divisions are coming in and helping more. And then you extend that out across the joint to like, say if it's a press or something, well, maybe now I'm going to use a little bit more delt and a little bit more tricep and stuff as well. Right. So that that's like extending out to the next level of helpers and the next level. Right. And eventually you get to a point where the things that are trying to help are so inefficient 
that either your technique starts to break down or you just simply simply can't move the load right and this is one of the reasons why you know especially in like compound exercises when people fatigue you will see that they tend to change the way that the joints are moving right whether it's a squat or a bench press like the bar path changes or where they you know where their knee and their hip you know motions are kind of dominant or whatever will start to change and it's because their body's trying to find a way to use tissue that isn't as fatigued and that's that that's one of the reasons that like when we're looking at these big exercises that in general we tend not to train them as close to fatigue um because you start to get to a point where you're moving away from what the original goal was of, of doing the exercise right because you have such an ability to kind of reposition your joints and stuff to get something else to work um which is which is a great thing to do like if you know if you know if something falls on you and you want to like you, you need to save yourself you want to push that up in whatever weird freaking awkward way possible right but if you're trying to target a specific, like your your chest well then you don't want your elbows to start flaring and you know like your triceps to start doing weird things and your grip to start moving etc you want basically your last rep to look just like a slower version of your first rep if possible and usually that comes a little bit further away from actual like you know true muscular fatigue because your ability to compensate is greater but then when we look at more biased exercises what happens is because they're so specific to that one tissue is that you have much less of a capacity to use those other guys as you fatigue right so you essentially like you go from being able to do like great reps to no reps really fast versus an exercise that's less specific you kind of have some shaky or grindy reps that you could do that you that you know if you wanted to and my argument would be is that those grindy and shaky reps are those are the reps that are harder on your joints and inc drastically increase like the stimulus to fatigue ratio in the favor of being way more fatiguing and so as you get if you get to exercises that are more specific and more stable you go from great performance to just not being able to do the rep with very little change in technique and a lot less extra fatigue right so, so. yeah no, that makes a lot of sense. I've definitely noticed that myself, that the, the fatigue and the sort of drop-off is just a lot cleaner. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, Megan Bryanton did, did some... Are you familiar with her at all? Uh, um, I don't think she, so. She did some research in powerlifting, um, essentially looking at, like, squat biomechanics, bench press, deadlift, things like that. And so mm -hmm. she kind of had, like, a, a really great model for, like, compensatory movement strategies mm -hmm. um, and, and, like, different squat patterns and how that sort of reflected in the actual movement strategy of the lifter and... and was like, hey, if you want to do this, or if your lifter is kind of doing this, you should probably be doing this, and blah blah. blah. And it was it's pretty interesting, but essentially, it's kind of saying the same thing. Like, if you start seeing these these compensatory strategies, then you're sort of getting away from the the, the training stimulus you're actually trying to impose on the on the tissues, or if it's a movement strategy for performance, then whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And so, could you then go into sort of like line of pull and talk about how that sort of relates to to all of this stuff as well, because. Um, I think that definitely makes sense, you know, from, from a fatigue standpoint, from a more directed or targeted stimulus standpoint, and just sort of removing a lot of the excess volume that seems unnecessary. Um, so how does like line of pull and things like that, just kind of, if you could give like a brief overview of how those things and like uh, sort of impact the setup of an exercise. Yeah. So every exercise has, it has a motion, right? If it's a bicep curl, it's elbow flexion, right? If it's a dumbbell press, it's up in the, you know, the plane of gravity from wherever you are or whatnot, right? So your exercise is going to have a motion that 
it, it is the movement, right, that you're doing, right? Now, your body, it has its own movements. And so line of pole basically is the what direction that tissue would move the joints, right? Like most specifically, right? So, you know, for the biceps, something like that, it's very easy because the elbow joint constrains the movement to just, just flexion, right? It's pretty much just one plane of motion. But then we go to things like the shoulder that can move all over the place, right? So you got your lower pecs that can pull the arm down, your middle pecs that can pull them across, your clavicular pecs that pull them up and across. And then you got your anterior delts that start pulling things up, your lateral delts that start pulling the shoulder out. So line of pull is whatever is basically the motion that that muscle would go through from its stretch to its shortened position. And when it comes to exercise, what we're trying to do is we're trying to set up the best possible match between the muscles line of pull and then the motion of the, of, of the exercise itself. Right. So for instance, you know, if we were trying like bench angle is something, you know, that's been used for, you know, a gazillion years since lifting things up was the thing, right. It's like, okay, we know that like, if we, if we, move the angle of the bench now we have to press in a different angle and that's going to then slightly change the relationship with the line of pull of the pecs right so if we're pushing more to decline position well then in that stretch position those costal pecs the lower pecs have a better line of pull than the upper pecs right but then if we are in an incline position and we're sitting there at the bottom of our press our upper pecs actually kind of have a little bit better line of pull than the lower pecs in that position right and so we're just trying to always figure out how can we best match whatever the exercise motion is with the actual anatomical motion you know of that muscle right and you'll hear people talk about different things when it comes to biomechanics some people talk about moment arms moments and all of this stuff and a simple way to think of it if you listen or hear any of that other stuff is that line of pull is basically just the sum of all of those nerdy mechanical things right it's because it, it literally is it's like this is the exact thing that that tissue that that tissue does right so it accounts for all, all of those all of those other things and it's very visually we'll say representative like like it literally is it's like if you look at you know if you just learn the origin and insertion of a muscle the first way the first step to getting better at knowing this stuff is like look you're just taking the the end that moves closer to the end that doesn't move right and you know if you start with a coloring book or you start with an app or you just you know start poking around on your body and be like oh that this thing is there and i'm trying to get it closer to there that what would that look like that's your entry point to like learning line of pull and your experience and training is your feedback to how well you're doing how well you're accomplishing that yeah no that definitely makes sense actually i remember quite a long time ago i remember there being like an actual debate about whether or not the incline bench press targets your upper pecs better than the flat bench press or something like that mm -hmm. people being like no it's the same and i was just like mm, i don't know man i don't know about that yeah. but yeah. I, I guess it's like the magnitude is relative to the context that they're beginner intermediate advanced whatever but uh yeah I don't well know. You're, you're you're referring to the emg test right and so there's some that say it does and some that say it doesn't and this is why like as you start to get a little bit more nuanced like you become like you start to see like okay well i can see why they did here and they didn't here so for example in that emg test and the one where they said there was no difference they were using a very wide like arm path right so their elbows were were out to the side um which just isn't a very good setup for the pecs in general right you, you're basically you want to have your not, not your elbows all the way into your side but like no more like you want to be like you know no more than like a 
your elbows flared out like 45 degrees or whatever. So your bar path then ends up being more of the, you know, angled up path. Like it's a low to, to high, uh, type bar path. Right. Um, so, or the inverted J or whatever you guys call it. Uh, so, and if you did, if you, if you look at a study that uses one grip, it might get one result and a study that uses another grip gets another result. And then when we're looking at things like EMG, you know, remember the EMG is just saying activity. That's like, that's one of the things that we use in our lab, but like I can have one exercise that has very little range of motion, but great EMG. And then I have another exercise that maybe isn't good, but it goes through a great range of motion or it hits a stretch position or whatever it may be. And you have to be careful saying, well, because this one scored higher on the EMG, it is therefore better. It's like, well, no, you have to take that into context of, well, what was the signal? How much range of motion was there, et cetera. So like a simple thing like that PEC study where we have the wide arm path, like you, if anybody at home can do this, if you take your elbows and you flare them out to where like they're, you know, you're horizontal and then you pull your shoulders back, like you'll realize like, okay, I don't get very far back. But as soon as you bring your elbows down, all of a sudden now you can extend your shoulders further. It's like, okay, so if I compared the EMG of those things, it wouldn't account necessarily for the fact that one of those is actually in a one different shoulder position, but it's also going through a different amount of, of range of motion, right? So what I, what I would say to people is just be very careful when you see things in research and then somebody says, hey, this performed better than that. Be very careful of saying, hey, well, that means this is how we should do it on the training floor. Because in research, the goal is to basically be very specific in what the cause and effect are. But in order to do that, a lot of times you have to pull away a lot of the context from real world application. Right. So one of the things I like to say is it's like, look, a lot, like if we're looking at research, that's the least contextual data, but we're we were most confident in that cause and effect was actually that because they controlled so many things. But your personal anecdote of like, hey, when I do this, it works for me. That's directly contextual to you, your human, your experience, your biomechanics, your everything, right? So while you may not always be 100% right on like, well, it was this exercise that did this or it was this tweak in my nutrition that did that, you are actually being the most contextual in that like you're, it includes everything that's happening in the real world for this exact individual. So there's always this balance between like, okay, it's cool to look at stuff in the literature and kind of see what's there. But if you don't have the ability to really dissect that, be very, very cautious in going away from personal experience or anecdote or common sense, right? To, well, the study said, said this, because a lot of times that missing context would, you know, kind of gives a, we'll say a, a false conclusion, or at least a, we'll say a misrepresentation of how you would apply that in the real world. Yeah, and there's definitely several instances, like I've been posting quite a bit about like, you know, what it means to be evidence-based mm -hmm. um, and about how nowadays it seems like a lot of it is just purely research and most of it's just sort of dismissing anecdote. And they're like, anecdote is down here and research is up here. And it's like, I don't know that you could say that definitively because like, if we look at how much we have in terms of research, it's like that much, mm -hmm. relatively speaking. You know, like how much research do we have on a, on a feet up bench press? like what a couple studies you know mm -hmm. what i mean and you're supposed so so i think like and th there's so many instances right like the research where it's like oh technique and injury has no relationship um isometrics is going to be the best thing for developing strength um fatigue fatigue relative to squat and deadlift are basically equivocal it's like you talk to any strong athlete they're gonna be like no nah, deadlift is way more fatiguing 
you know, in like 99% of the cases. And then same thing with like the EMG data as like a proxy versus being like an actual direct measure of what it is you're trying to like get. I think even like, actually I remember seeing EMG readings on like sumo versus conventional or something like that. Mm -hmm. Sumo versus a stiff, I can't remember exactly what it was, but they were saying that the, e the hip recruitment of both are the same. And I was like, that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, even just like when you feel the lift, you're like, no, sumo is like hella quads, mm -hmm. and and you know, regular conventional deadlift is way more hips, and and mm -hmm. and so a lot of the times, like yeah, exactly like you said, where it's like you kind of take your real world experience, and it's like it seems really different what I'm experiencing. When I talk to 15 other people at my gym, and they're also experiencing the same thing, maybe I don't understand all of this or the context or whatever it is. So, yeah, I think that's one of the things that sometimes kind of get so this is this is a good analogy to, to use that right so let's say I, I i you get to choose between two of these i will give you a handful of diamonds and i guarantee you that they're all real or i will give you like a bucket full of diamonds but only maybe 25 percent of them are real right yeah. well you're going to get a lot more real diamonds out of the bucket, but it comes with the fact that you're going to have to figure out which 25% are real and, and, and which ones aren't or whatever. Right. And that's an extreme example in the favor of, you know, cause it might be closer to 50%, you know, on, on your anecdotes it just kind of depends on how well you kind of are self-aware and evaluating your experience, but it's like, okay, what we see, like you said, we have so little, so little amount of data, right. When it comes to research, but, your real world experience is a complete data set. It just has a lot of noise, right? And so you have to look at those two things. The research you have to look at, how would that how would that be beneficial if I put it into context of the real world? And then your real world stuff, you have to be like, okay, how can I be a little bit more confident in cause and effect? And how can I filter out some of the noise of, you know, some of my, you know, feedbacks and biases, et cetera, you know, that I'm experiencing. So in both of those things, you're just trying to you're just trying to use that data as honestly and as applicable, you know, as possible. But they're equally good resources. They just happen to have different pros and cons. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I think that's kind of a good place to end the conversation. Um, where can people find you? So you can find us uh, on YouTube and Instagram right now. Um, it's, you can follow me at Coach Kasim or my brands are N1 Education and N1 Training. So N1.Education and N1.Training respectively. It's pretty intuitive what the difference between those two are, right? So if you're a personal trainer or you're looking for courses, education, if you're looking to just see like, you know, the exercises that we do and, you know, Get a get a foundation of some stuff, you know, some of our principles or whatnot, uh, the training stuff, you know. And if you're one of those people that likes to experience this stuff in person, like we are based out of uh, Colorado, that's where our lab and our headquarters is. So if you want to, uh, if you want to come and experience what it really is to train to failure with great technique and whatnot, um, you know, you you yeah, just go on one of our social media posts. Tons of people there, um, highly recommending it, making all of the poop faces, you know, and crying and tears that you could, that you could think of. Um, but honestly, like if I would say, you know, people always ask me what books, you know, I recommend, et cetera. And I mean, I think you could, you, you, you could read books for 10 years and still not get the benefit of what you can, you know, what you can experience hands on, 
you know, for, for training. I mean, training is a physical thing. It's a, it's a hands-on thing. So being able to actually see people go through the motions and then go through it yourself and feel it and experience it and whatnot, it's, it's a life-changing experience. So if you want to follow us on social, awesome. But if you want to come see us in person, that's that 10,000% recommend that over reading any, any, anything else that's out there. Awesome, man. So all that stuff's going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Definitely make sure you go and check it out. They put out a lot of great stuff on a regular basis. Um, yeah, Cass, man, thanks for jumping on. It's It's been a really interesting chat. Yeah, appreciate you having me.